0: inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have eight questions. We have a lot of comments on every question, so I'm going to try to get through these with some kind of you know, not speed per se, but regularity, moving along. Um, If any of you are new and you're wondering where I get these questions and how you can ask a question of your own, I'm going to actually reschedule the Sunday morning posts. Uh, It's usually Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. It goes out on my YouTube community tab. And the community tab is when you go to the homepage of my podcast channel. So if you go to YouTube, um, opinions that don't matter, go to the homepage of that channel, go to community tab, it's in there. But instead of releasing at 6am, I am going to start releasing them around noon, just to give other people different opportunities. Because I've heard from a lot of you that it's too early for me because, you know, I'm in Australia, or I'm in, you know, uh, California. And that's just too. I'm not up that early. By the time I get in, mine doesn't have enough time to get question. you know, get the thumbs ups, blah, blah, blah. I've been listening. So we're going to move it to a later time for a bit. And then we'll move it even later for the Australia folks. And then we'll, you know, we'll just try to try to at some, some regular intervals. And sorry, if you hear the doorbell, my dog wants out. But at some regular intervals, we'll try to move it along so everybody gets an opportunity. And with that being said, let's jump into our first question. And this question says, happy Thursday, Katie. Happy Thursday. It says, how do you know if a patient is ready to move on from stabilization to processing traumas? Good question. Is there a certain amount of time that needs to go by with abstinence from target behaviors? Does frequency of dissociation play into the decision? I know it'll be different patient to patient, but I'm curious how you decide if an individual patient is ready to move on in the tiered approach. Now, this was a great question, and somebody left a comment on this question that was pretty much what I'm going to say. So, if you're wanting, you know, to read through those, those are always helpful. We have a wonderful community filled with people with experience and expertise, and it's just beautiful. So, the truth about it: How do I know if a patient is ready to move on from? And if anybody's wondering what these terms mean, stabilization is essentially when we try to make it so that you're able to manage every day, right? You're stable. And that's usually when it comes to eating disorder treatment, we talk about that being medically stable, so that you're not passing out, that your heart is okay, that Your energy levels, you can walk around or, you know what I mean? Like your ambulatory. There's a lot of different things we look at when it comes to medically or physically stabilized. Before then, we'll get into the emotional component, right? The processing traumas. But in general, for some of my patients who struggle with suicidal ideations and attempts, stabilization can mean that we're wanting to minimize those thoughts or behaviors or make them more manageable. And so overall, the way that I know if someone's ready to move on from whatever stabilization means for them and their mental illness once those, the way that I know they're able to move on into the, let's say, processing traumas, or they called it the tiered approach in this question as well, is once those targeted behaviors, meaning self-injurious behaviors, eating disorder behaviors, uh, suicidal thoughts, attempts, um, intense depressive episodes, manic episodes, any number of things, right? Whatever those behaviors or mental illness-like symptoms, once those have become manageable, meaning they don't have to go away, but they have to be something that we know when they happen. I have tools and resources. I'm okay. I can get myself through, right? Once you kind of reach that level, that's when we can move on to the processing stage. Because if you think about the way we talk, like specifically for trauma, the way we talk about it is we have to have resources or coping skills built up first, right? So that When we enter into that processing, talking through, even if it's somatic experience, whatever type of therapy we're going to try to do, EMDR, we're going to need to have some ways to calm our system down to soothe while we do that. And so we're going to have to have those resources and coping skills like on lock before we do move into that, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. Fingers crossed. And so I just want you to know that the reason that we have to wait until we're manageable and we have those. You know, resources available is so that when we go into the processing phase, or the EMDR, the whatever treatment, trauma treatment, we want to make sure that we don't re-traumatize ourselves or overwhelm our system so much so that then we go into a panic attack or dissociation. Right? We want to be able to keep ourselves in a a pretty neutral slash maybe safe place. Depending on the person, some people will you know don't feel quote unquote safe in a safe place, and others do. So at least get us out of that. Stress response or that fight flight freeze. And that's where those coping skills come in. And that's why that's so important. And so stabilization could mean medication and these coping skills. It could mean, you know, like I said, medically stabilized so that, like, let's say I'm not passing out or I'm not having, um, I don't know, irregular heartbeats or feeling really, uh, really nauseous or whatever. You know, I don't know what else could be going on. Depends on our medical complications and issues as well. But we have to be able to manage those first before we go into the processing. I hope that makes sense and is clear. Now, the question says, and it doesn't have to be, then another question says, is there a certain amount of time that needs to go by with abstinence from target behaviors? In my opinion, no. Some people might. I know that this is totally random and not necessarily in line at all with this answer. But I remember when I worked at this eating disorder treatment center, in order for the uh, professionals, so other therapists to work at the treatment center, if they'd had an eating disorder themselves, they must have, uh, they had to have been recovered for at least three years. Now, I know that's really random, but sometimes in certain situations, they'll put like actual time constraints on things. I personally do not. I feel like as long as you are working at it and you have tools and techniques and things that you can do, um, then I might be more, you know, that's all that really matters to me and I'd be more apt to move you into the processing phase. But obviously, different therapists, different patients, people are going to have different, like maybe timeframes. I personally don't adhere to that because I don't think that you guys know, I don't even always love that we keep track of how many days recovered, because then the weight of that slip up, it can hold us down for much longer because we're like, fuck, I just lost like 200 days. I got to start back at zero. You know, and some of you told me it's motivating. So to each their own, but I'm just saying that there isn't a certain amount of time that needs to go by. I just need to know that you have the resources and the tools available so that you can manage, you know, the emotional component that's going to come along with that processing. And then another question on it says Does frequency of dissociation play into the decision? Uh, Yes and no. I know it'll be different patient to patient. Okay. So this is the last question on the first component, but we have some comments. So, Frequency of dissociation will play into it because if we're dissociating all the time, that means that we don't have an, our resources aren't good enough. We don't have a good enough coping skill to keep us grounded. We we need to work on our grounding techniques. Then that would actually tell us more information and be helpful. Because I'm like, hey, you know, you're having a tough time being present at all. Trauma processing is not going to work, right? We know we cannot reprocess trauma when we're dissociated. Unfortunately, I know it sucks, but. That's why a huge component of EMDR, my uh, good friend Dr. Alexa Altman has made me aware of, is grounding so that we can stay present, so that the processing can happen. And so we're going to need to beef those up. We're going to need to make sure that we have better ones or more variety of them, or we have the tools needed to make them work for us, right? And so the frequency of dissociation does play into it in that way, but it to me it's not necessarily like the frequency as much as it is our ability to stay present in therapy or in the processing phase, like, can we even stay present then? And I'd be really curious about that because if I have a patient who's dissociating out in their regular life, I don't see that usually means they are dissociating therapy as well, but it's not always. And so I don't see it as a, you know, black and white kind of issue. It's something I would talk with a patient about to better learn when and why they're dissociating. And then we have to put some tools in place so that that frequency goes down. Now there was a comment on this says, what if a patient is never ready to get to a quote unquote next stage? My dissociation is so bad. We can't get anywhere. And whenever I try, my eating disorder gets dangerously bad, which becomes the main issue. And I feel like my trauma will never be resolved. This is a wonderful question. And maybe it's a a video I do where I, you know, those like KDN filter videos where I just like ramble. Maybe I do that for this and I'm going to highlight this so I do not forget. Um, Highlight. I'll remember. Okay. But anyways, um, my thoughts on this are that we need a different type of therapy. I've heard this from a lot of you that we can't move on to the next stage because then our eating disorder or our suicidal um, thoughts or urges just get too strong. It gets overwhelming. So we end up then not being stable, right? So we get out of that stabilization phase and then we can't process. And so part of me feels like we need to either try because this one says, this person says that dissociation is so bad. So EMDR is not going to be for you. But my thought would be, maybe we try somatic, somatic experiencing, like moving through your body. Maybe we try um, schema or we try just different types. Um, And maybe EMDR could be the thing that we focus on because then we're able to learn how to ground. So the dissociation is lesser and we can do, you know, like the butterfly taps and stuff. And that can be soothing in and of itself. So I, I really think that we might need to look at different types of therapy if we're talking outpatient. But my gut, you guys, when I read this was like, I think you need inpatient. And the reason that I say that is because it's often our distractions and things in our life, the stressors of life that keep us held in our eating disorder or our trauma or whatever. And it can be, it can, it can hold us there. And if we don't have support around us or removal of those stressors, we won't be able to get through it. And so having that 24-7 support and the removal of the world stressors um, can be extremely beneficial and can help us finally push through. And there was num- another comment on this and it says, same. I feel like how, no matter how many times I talk about a specific trauma, it still feels terrible. I've tried EMDR and it doesn't seem to work for me. When I'm really struggling with trauma stuff, I know I need to talk about something, but I can't figure out what because I've already shared it before. Sorry. And I hope that makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. Yes, that totally makes sense. Again, I know I've been talking a lot about somatic experiencing because I've been reading and researching a lot about it because I'm working on a project um, with regard to somatic experiencing, but I really have to push you to give it a go, to try, to find someone in your area who does it or to do like trauma-informed yoga. They have it on the Hope for Recovery website, um, the trauma-informed yoga. I think movement can be where you can heal because talking it out only does so much. Um, And if EMDR isn't working, then we got to try something different. And the only other modalities I can think of are things like Somatic experiencing, maybe some schema therapy. There can be different types of things that we can do to help us push through and help us finally get some resolution. Because if you guys don't remember, you know, talk therapy doesn't work for a lot of people. It's like only works for like 40%, which is a huge swath. So a lot of you are getting, you know, complete resolution, but a lot of you aren't. And so, I want you to know that there are other options and we can ask for different treatment. Not to mention, even in my book, Traumatized, I offer like other treatments, Uh, things like, sorry, my puppy's here, Um, things like, uh, you know, vagus nerve stimulation or stellate ganglion block. Those can all be things that we can do to help us better manage and overcome our trauma symptoms. I hope that that's helpful and happy to, like I said, I'm going to try to talk about it more. I'll put it in my to-do list here soon. Okay, let's move on to question number two. This question says, Hi, Katie, this isn't really a question, but something that I wanted to mention, because I don't think I've heard you talk about it yet. Lots of people ask questions about not being able to identify their feelings. And you always mention feelings charts and describe how you think certain emotions should feel, which is great advice. But as someone who was emotionally numb for years, what really helped me was figuring out that feelings aren't always physical. And you can recognize emotions by your thoughts. This was ground, a groundbreaking discovery for me. When I'm angry, I don't feel angry, but my thoughts are racing and I want to vent to someone. When I'm sad, I don't feel sad, but I notice my thoughts get depressing and I'm much less motivated. When I'm excited, I'm buzzing to talk to people to tell them whatever it is that has me excited. And when I'm happy, I get motivated and I get a motivated and hopeful mindset. Physically, I don't feel that much because emotions can be very subtle. And because of that, I was convinced that I had no emotions. But after realizing that I have emotional thoughts, only then was I able to slowly identify the physical part of the emotions, like the heavy breathing, clenched jaw, and the pit in my stomach, or the giddiness and the restlessness. It all started with my thoughts. I wanted to mention this because I thought this was beautiful and incredibly helpful and something that I don't think I've talked about before, or if not a- not much. Um but this person's 100% correct. And sometimes we can also it depends on us, right? We can identify emotions by our feelings, by our actions or urges to act, uh, our bodily responses and obviously our um you know how it feels, right? Like in I think that's what I was hoping to get out of like the feelings charts and describing how you think ones could feel because then we might be able to identify more, like when those thoughts or urges or emotions come up, right? Then we're like, oh, I have that that same thing that I talk about when we talk when I assumed uh, anxiety or nervousness or something, right. But I think that's incredibly helpful. And why I just wanted to share it here is that if we're able to identify the thoughts that we have or the patterns of behavior, right? I think sometimes it's doing that homework, being a detective about ourselves. What do I want to do when I'm excited? What is it that I feel the urge to to do when I'm angry or sad? Or what is it, right? Even if that urge, I know we think of urge as like an urge to take an action. The urge could be inaction, like the, the want or the need to shut down. Or like the person who wrote this question slash comment, about when they're depressed, they're less motivated. So, like that inaction actually tells you more than the action, like, um, than doing something, if that makes sense. And so, paying attention to that and being able to identify those patterns and connect them with an emotion or a thought, or you know, getting into that somehow into that cycle of like, you know, we have thoughts, we have feelings about those thoughts, and we take action based on that the CBT kind of cycle. If we can get in there and some wherever, wherever we're able to get in get in there and that can tell you then mo- more. Does that? I don't think that makes much sense. So let me say it again. If we can get into that cycle, right? Because we all have a cycle in our brain where we have thoughts because thoughts happen all the time. We have thousands of them each day. We have thoughts and we have feelings about those thoughts, which is what this person is saying. They're able to notice their thoughts and then they rec- that's how they recognize the feeling. And then because of those thoughts and feelings, then we take action. We have behavioral things that we do, right? Whether it's like, I want to go vent to someone or I just really feel like punching uh, someone or something, right? We can have those actions that we want. I want to run away. So I want to get in my car, drive away. Um, We can have those urges and wherever we're able to plug in, meaning I'm able to look at the thoughts and I can recognize those more or feelings are easier for me, or it's more in my body. What's the urge that I feel to do in my body? Um, Wherever we're in that cycle, we're able to plug in plug in there, because that will help you then complete it and be able to attach to the other ones as well. It's like this person is saying that their emotional thoughts allow them to then be able to identify the feelings. And you know that might be the case for you. It might be feelings and then thoughts. It might be the behaviors or how it feels in your body first. But it's just a wonderful reminder that we're all different and that there are different ways in to figure out what our feelings are, especially if we've been numbed out for like most of our life. And yeah, thank you so much to the person who shared this incredibly, incredibly helpful. Moving on to question number three. This question says, hi, Katie, my therapist died this week. I'm so sorry. It was not completely unexpected because she had terminal cancer. I had an inkling things were progressing for the worse as she had canceled several sessions. I'm heartbroken that we will never have had the last session I imagined in my mind and that I will never get to tell her about my future wins. I wanted the ability to say goodbye and tell her how much she meant to me. I feel silenced. It's hard to put into words the impact of our journey together. I came into her office three years ago, a complete mess and drowning in depression symptoms. Today, I feel like a completely different person because of our work together. I recognize that I need to process this loss with someone. And I know that therapy is something that I want and need in my life. But the thought of jumping into something new feels like too much right now. Plus, I'm sure I'll be put on a waiting list. What can I do in the meantime to help process this loss? First of all, I am so incredibly sorry for your loss at losing a therapist or any member of our treatment team really is, it's like a a unique type of loss because it's, it's the loss of like a companion in our recovery, you know, and feeling like we, we kind of lost our, our team, our partner, our cheerleader, our, you know, person rooting for us. Um, and yeah, and I'm just I'm very sorry. Now because you said there might be it's most likely there's a waiting list, I might encourage you in the next couple of weeks to just get yourself on that because by the time you're ready, I want you to know that you can see someone. I don't want you to be like, "Now I have to wait 6 months or something." Um because I will be honest, I think in a couple of months you might feel okay moving towards that. Not necessarily, and I'm not rushing you. I'm just saying maybe get on that waiting list depending on how long you think they are. If it's like 6 months, let's get on it now. Um, and what we can do in the meantime, in the meantime, we can talk about it. We can journal about it. And when I say talk about it, I mean, talk about like what you're, the things you kind of alluded to here, like all the progress you've made, the things you've worked through with her. Is there someone in your life that you can talk about this with like a good friend where you're like, I'm really having a hard time. I'm going to miss her. These are the things that we worked through. And it's, she's been, instrumental in my progress and in me better managing my depression. And, you know, if it's a close friend, you can be like, remember what I was like before I started seeing her? It's been, in, it's been insane, like the work that we've done. And I think having that opportunity to talk about it, the things you've worked through, the, the sadness you feel and the things you wished you could have worked on together. I think all of that is going to be incredibly healing. And I, I really just encourage you if you feel safe to do that. If there isn't a person in your life that you can talk with about it, then I think it's completely fine to just journal about the things that you worked through. And I would encourage you to kind of keep them into three buckets, like maybe even going back to like what you were like when you first started seeing her, like if you can recall some of that sounds like you can, maybe we take a couple notes of that. And then the things we liked about her, because I want you to be able to pick a good therapist in the future. So like the things that we really appreciated about her, the, the reason that we felt so connected and able to work on those things, um, and the work that we did, what are some of the things you did together? It's almost like, even though she's not here to do it with you, that doesn't mean we can't process the loss on our own in the way that we would have hoped we could have done, you know, if it wasn't a kind of a terminal cancer type of situation. Like I have videos about, um, four four tips for ending therapy or the w- best way to end therapy. You can look those up on YouTube. Just put in like tips for ending therapy, Katie Morton. They should, I think there's two or three, they should pop up. Um, But anyways, I think, you know, acknowledging the work you've done together is going to be really healing, writing that down in your journal, jotting down the things, the homework that was really beneficial for you or really tough times. Let's just kind of categorize or timeline out how we got better and her role in it and allow yourself to cry, allow yourself. One thing that I used to do with patients, I don't know if any of you know this, but back in the day, um, me and uh, is actually one of my professors, Dr. Lisa Bauer. I love her. She's wonderful. Her and I went down to San Diego. I think it was every week for like six weeks to get um, our certifications as grief counselors. And part of the what we learned there is that sometimes it can help to have transitional objects. I've talked about these off and on over the years, but transitional objects are essentially things that you can take with you to remind you of your time with your therapist or with your teacher, some of my teachers and obviously in grad school, because it's therapy gave us transitional objects, and I still have some of them. But because that you had, even though it wasn't a sudden loss, you it was, you know, it still happened, and we're not going to get to go into her office, and she's not gonna be able to give us a transitional object, we can create one. And one that I really thought was kind of beautiful one that we learned about in this grief uh, training was to get a small, like wicker wreath, and it could be big too. But in ours, we just did, they were like, I don't know you know, just maybe as big around as like a salad plate or a dessert plate, you could do smaller. Um, and get a bunch of ribbon or other fabric swaths that mean something to you or that are that look a certain way that you like, go down to like Joanne Fabrics or Walmart or some wherever you live, you know, if you're in the UK or something, like whatever your local store is that carries things like that. And get just a, you know, maybe a like half a meter or two feet of each one and cut them into strips that are about like six inches long, maybe a little longer if you wanted. And as you, so on this wicker wreath, we're going to take this ribbon or these fabric strips and we're going to weave them through the wicker. And we're going to each, with each strip of fabric or ribbon, we're going to think about a thing that we did with them. Think about something we process, think about an experience or a a memory that we have. And I want you to really think about it when you do that. And I want you to tie it on that wreath. And you can even write stuff on the fabric. Some people did that. You can write, you know, or put stickers or any kind of thing. Um, And then you tie them onto your wreath and then you hang the wreath. And for some people, they want to leave the wreath up indefinitely. Other people felt like it was like a year and then they didn't really need the reminder anymore. Um, But I think there's something just beautiful about Evoking helpful, loving, wonderful memories and taking the time to create a thing to represent that and then putting it in a place where you see it all the time. I made one for my dad and I put it up in my bedroom in my apartment when I used to live on 5th in California in Santa Monica. And I kept it up until I left that apartment. So two years or so. And then, you know, I was ready to move on. And but again, you can keep it up forever if you want. There's no judgment there. It's more just creating a thing to represent that. And I think sometimes that's really beautiful and it gives us an activity and it gives us a, a reason to come up with memories and, or not come up with them, but remember, take the time to remember. And also something that's, that I did is as I had a new memory or something else popped up, I would add to it. So even though I'd already hung it, I would just continue to add to the wreath um, because it can be hard to think of everything all at once. And it also gives you something to like, oh, you know, Oh, I remember when they said this, and it was just really life-changing. It was an aha moment for me. You go and put that on the wreath. Um, It might sound silly. It's just one idea. Um, Like I said that, you know, journaling, talking about it, those are all really healthy and hopefully helpful ways to help you process through this loss. And again, I'm so sorry for your loss. Now there was another two comments on this. And one comment said, on this note, is it appropriate for a client to go to their therapist's funeral? Yes, 100%. It's completely appropriate we go to funerals for ourselves and for the other people that we know might be there that we want to support. And so if that's helpful for you because you need to process that loss and move on, then yes, go. That's why funerals, you don't get like an invitation to a funeral, right? You just go because you need to. And so yes, it's completely ethical and appropriate. Now, there's another comment on this said, wow, that's so awful. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with. I actually wanted to bring up the possibility of a death of any kind with my therapist. It's such a special and specific relationship and not one that many people know exist. How to talk about this with your therapist? I think so often we think we need to have like this exact way of saying something to our therapist or know exactly what words we want to get out. And sometimes it's okay to just say, you know, I'm just worried about Death. I fear death. It's a very common fear, by the way. Um, I don't know. It, it's in my mind all the time. I'm always concerned about it. I am always worried that, you know, something bad is going to happen to someone I love. It depends. I don't know exactly what, you know, what the possibility of death, like what it is that you want to talk with your therapist about. But it's also okay just to say, you know the topic of death has been on my mind. You could even mention this and say, "You know, I was reading through some comments and someone talked about losing their therapist and it just got me thinking about how much I fear death or or how much I just feel like I need to talk about it because it's this worry and then I feel like it's ta- it's a taboo topic because for many people it is." And bring in that's all you really have to say to your therapist because you don't I mean you could say mention this comment and say they lost their therapist and i don't know if you feel comfortable talking about that but i have a big fear of that or i do i am concerned you know what would i do if i lost you kind of thing you don't have to have answers you don't have to know what you even want to get out of it but you just have to express that like hey the possibility of death of any kind is just looming in my head and overwhelming to me and i'm really scared can we talk more about it and can it be if you have an idea of what the goal is if you're like i'd like to get to a point where i don't worry that's all I have to tell your therapist. I'd like to get to a point where I this isn't constantly on my mind, you know. Um, and my guess would be they'll be want you to be a detective about it. Like, when are these thoughts stronger or more frequent, or is it just always been this way as long as you can remember? Did we have any deaths in our family that we think might have, lended to this, or has it never been okay in our family to talk about death or the potential death, or when someone's when we lose someone, can we not like, openly, actively cry and and talk about it? You know, it can kind of help sometimes to to be curious to figure out where our belief system and what's appropriate not appropriate about death come from. Um and then we can challenge that if it's not serving us, right? If if this family, and I'm just not saying this is your family, but if if our family dynamic is to like Oop, don't talk about it, zip the lips and we don't say anything any emotion that we deem bad or uncomfortable, we don't talk about it. You know, if your family is that way, then we're going to have to understand where that comes from and fight back against that urge to shut it down and instead find ways to healthfully express, you know, upset or loss, grief, devastation, right? We have to find a way to kind of get that out so we're not stuffing it down. Does that help? I hope so. Let's move on to question number four. I love this intro. It says, Katie, 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 your videos are the best. Thank you for this. Question... How do I convince myself fully that my assault wasn't at all my fault? This is hard for a lot of people. Technically speaking, I absolutely could have just stayed home, but I didn't. And I can't let that go. I also could have done more afterwards, but again, I didn't. How do I let this go so that I can move on with my life? I've done lots of therapy, but I can't get past the technicalities of it. God, I wish there was like some magic potion or magic behavioral technique I could offer that would make all of us let go of this blame, shame, guilt that comes along with trauma. Oh, I know it's so heavy and exhausting. And we can think of all the things that we should have done or said or ways we could have acted differently. I mean, one of my girlfriends was held up at gunpoint outside of her car. Her and her friend had just had dinner in Houston, Texas, walked back to their car and they both got held up at gunpoint And all my girlfriend kept saying to me is, I just shouldn't have gone out to dinner that night. And I'm like, how? I mean, if so if we consider, okay, let's just, you and I, let's be honest. How the fuck would you have known that that was going to happen? Who told you you couldn't just live your life? We just live our lives, right? We are so fortunate and privileged, especially with the war going on and things chaotic right now, as someone who can just go out to dinner, or go out to a bar with a girlfriend, or whatever it is I want to do. The fact that we have the ability to do that is a privilege, and it's one that we've taken advantage of for a long time, who you couldn't have known. You cannot see the future. And just being out in the world does not mean that you're welcoming harm. I know Trauma Brain wants to tell us that because its whole job is to keep us safe. So our limbic system, which houses our amygdala and all of the fight, flight, freeze kind of response systems, it's firing and it is searching for a threat in our environment. And now it's telling you, hey, because when you went out, you were assaulted, going out, not a good choice, right? Let's stay safe. We'll stay at home. And that's just what we're going to have to do. And that's just how, that's unfortunately what it does as a way to try to protect us, which is where you know, therapy kind of comes in place or comes into play, I guess, where we have to like do some exposures and, and challenge those false beliefs about being out. And anyway, so there's, there's that. And some of that thought process about like, well, how would I have known, right? Checking our facts, checking the facts about the situation can help a little bit because and not all, it might work all the way for you, but I'm just going to offer some things. So the checking the facts can help because I mean, I like, let's take into consideration your example that, you know, you were, you were out and you were assaulted. I shouldn't have gone out. Right. Or my girlfriend that got held up at gunpoint at her car and she just went to dinner with a friend on like a Wednesday night. Okay. So if we check the facts, did we like, these are facts. These aren't thoughts or feelings. Is going out, you has going out ever caused us harm in the past? Most likely no. Some people, yes. We could say, yeah, I've been assaulted before or something, but let's say the answer is no. Okay. Was I, um, did I do anything to lure this person? Now, this is where it can get complicated. And our trauma brain is like, well, of course we did because you were wearing a skirt and you know, you shouldn't wear a skirt or you were, you know, walking in a dark space. You shouldn't have been walking in that dark space or you shouldn't have let your friend, um, you know, get in the car and you walk all alone to your car or whatever. Right. We can have these thoughts, but those are not facts. Those are assumptions and feelings. The facts are, no, walking out should be fine. And I should be able to wear whatever I want to wear. And I've gone out before. Nothing like this has happened. And I just, you know, walked like everybody else. And there were other people out. And I was just doing the thing that everybody else was doing, right? We have to just kind of check our facts along the way. But was that person acting in bad faith and being a bad human? Yes. Could we have prevented it? No. Was there anything that we could have done to make this stop or not happen? No. When someone is intent on harming others, there's little we can do to prevent it. And I know that sounds really depressing to say it that way, but sometimes I think the shame, blame, guilt gets in our head so much that we think, well, maybe if I just turned down this other street and maybe we could maybe and what if and I should, we can should all over it all day and it doesn't change the fact of what happened. And us acting in a normal fashion doesn't make what they did. Our fault. Think of like sometimes it helps to remove the situation and consider it from another perspective. Meaning, instead of an assault, instead of it being this exact example, let's say that we're watching a show where a child is going out to recess, and one child decides to wait for another child. And the other one doesn't want to wait, doesn't want to miss a minute of that recess. I totally get it. So the other two are kind of waiting because one has to go to the bathroom and they're just waiting. And the other one's like, I'll see you guys out there. We'll play kickball or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And the child goes out by herself, let's say. And as she walks out, she gets uh, punched in the face by a bully. And they say, you know, they they corral around her. There's a few of them and she gets punched. Now, was that her fault? Because she didn't wait for her friends because she went out on her own to recess? Sometimes it helps to think about it from another perspective as if you're not the victim because what that tells us, and just hang with me, what that tells us is it actually doesn't have anything to do about the scenario or what took place. It's actually about our belief about ourselves and what we think about our place in the world. And when we blame ourselves, it's usually a pattern from another time, meaning that like, Probably growing up, we were told that we're too sensitive or that we're too much or that, you know, sit down, shut up. We don't want to hear from you. You're not important, right? You're not loved. Whatever kind of messages we received, it's usually born out of that. Not so much about our action in this moment or inaction in this moment of terror and trauma. And sometimes it just helps to put it in perspective, to look at it from a different, like imagine that it happened to me or to one of your friends or someone that you know right? If you remove yourself and place someone else in that kind of situation, it's sometimes easier to see like, no, I would never blame them or think it was their fault. Now, I know that doesn't fix this. This isn't an overnight fix. What we what we have to get into is more about the the pattern of this, like what I was talking about, where this comes from. Where's this thought pattern coming from? What's the quote unquote evidence that you think you've collected through your thoughts and feelings to prove this? And really be curious, not judgmental about it because we don't really have to keep talking through what happened. That's not going to heal this. This might have to come through our, our curiosities around our thought process and our beliefs about ourselves. Does that make sense? I hope so. And also just to throw it in there because I feel like I need to sometimes moving our body through an experience, like imagining it's happening again. I know it's horrible, but almost like EMDR would take ourselves back to that place and we kick and scream and we run away. Maybe we create a different outcome. That can also be like an alternative way to get to healing. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Now, there's a comment on this that says, yeah, I can relate, relate to that. I was a young teen and I got myself into this sexually abusive situation again and again. As I agreed to spend time with them, why do I still want to spend time with my caretaker when they've abused me again and again? I'll get into this. I rationally know it wasn't my fault and I didn't realize how messed up it was, but I still feel like I'm partly responsible for what happened. That is, is so common. A lot of us go back for more and we feel like because I went back right again and again to spend time with them, that that puts us, makes us to blame for the abuse. Now, I have a couple thoughts on this. Number one is that just because we went back into the home or the situation doesn't mean that the abuse was necessarily going to happen. And we also, even though we went back, we didn't instigate them. We didn't, Ask them to abuse us. Is abuse ever okay? No. Are they just a bad person? Yes. Were they making poor decisions in their life that affected others? Mm hmm. Yes. And we don't make, we can't make people do things, you guys. I know I talk about that all the time, but I want to talk about a little bit here. No matter what I can do, I can't make people want to get better. I can't make people not want to be abusive or say things that are harmful. We all act on our own free will, for better or for worse. And that applies here in these abusive situations. Now, also when we're children, and I want you all to hear this, when we're little, when we're young, we often go back because they offered us something that we needed. Maybe it was was food. We needed a sandwich, a warm meal. Maybe it was a place to sleep. We had nowhere else to go. Maybe it was clothing, maybe it was attention, maybe nobody else paid us any attention. We often go back into these scenarios because there is something there that we need as a human. This doesn't again doesn't mean it's our fault. It doesn't mean that it was okay that what that they did what they did, but we go back for a for in order to get a need met, okay now there was a um and why does this happen again and again? I want to bring up the last thing before I get into this next comment is we often. When those of us who've been abused or traumatized often become traumatized or abused again. And I talk about this in my, in my book, Traumatized, that came out last September. <clears throat> um, because when we are traumatized or terrorized, it erodes our sense of self and our belief in our own ability to read environments and make good decisions. You see what I mean? Makes it hard for us to trust ourselves. I trusted my gut and I, you know, got assaulted. I was going along with what I felt was right. And I kept going back to my abuser. So what the fuck do I know? Right? We can really judge ourselves and think that it's not safe for us to trust our own gut. Therefore, when future situations to someone who didn't have a trauma past it'd be like, Oh, that person's creeping me out. Or I think they might be we got to get out of here. I don't like this, right? Remove myself from the situation, fight, flight, freeze, but we usually flight or fight. They would do that and they would take that action right away. But those of us who've been traumatized are like, I don't know, though, because like sometimes I feel okay and sometimes I don't. And last time I felt this way and I left, it got bad. Or I don't know if this is even the right way to feel. Maybe it is okay. Maybe I'm being super sensitive. Maybe I'm too sensitive, right? I'm being too whatever. And so we hang in there, or we allow someone else to make decisions for us, meaning that I can't trust my own gut and my own thought process about this. I'm going to ask someone else to make it for me. And that can be good or bad, depending on who's in our life. And if we don't really feel secure in who we are, and we struggle to make decisions, and we can think less of ourselves the shame, blame, guilt, right? Coming out of trauma, we cannot have healthy relationships. It can be difficult for us to be around good people thinking, I'm not deserving of that or, you know, um, I'm too broken for them. And so we can find ourselves in unhealthy situations. And then those are the people we turn to to make decisions and we end up getting harmed again. And so that's kind of why it happens to us again and again, is we almost can't read the signs because we've been, you know, we don't know if we can trust our own gut reaction. Okay. Now there was a comment on this as well. It says, also, I have another question. Um, It was this past Friday. Oh, I was, it was I was sexually assaulted this past Friday, but it wasn't my first time being assaulted or abused or anything of that nature. It happened on public transportation while I was telling the guy who was a stranger to stop putting his hands on me to remove them. And I even yelled at him. That seemed to make things worse, though. And so I kind of froze and no one did anything or intervened for a long time. God, the worst. One person did when the guy was following me off the train and trying to get me to go with him. And I'm feeling like there's something wrong with me. And that's why it happened yet again. And I feel like I wasn't loud enough. And that's why even people who were facing my direction did nothing. How can I get past this? I already had complex PTSD before this happened. How could this possibly happen again? And how can it possibly not be my fault? Again, I think the, first of all, I'm so sorry this happened. And I'm so sorry no one came to your aid. That really pisses me off. And, you know, I like to believe in the good in people, but sometimes, so the reason it's not your fault is you didn't ask this person to do it to you and you did not welcome it you fought back you said no you yelled sure maybe you didn't yell loud enough we could critique our outreach for support but i don't know who i don't know how someone could sit on a train and watch this happen and not do anything i do know a lot of people are afraid maybe they have a knife or a gun or you know and then it's like their own safety and our self-preservation kicks in and we're like oh we freeze um I'm not condoning their behavior, by the way. But how could this possibly not be your fault? Because you didn't do it to yourself. Because you didn't ask this guy to do it, and you didn't allow it. You did your best to fight back. It was him who decided to harm someone, who chose to, to touch someone who didn't want touched and to not stop. Just because we didn't fight back, that doesn't mean it's consent. I've talked with, about this a lot, especially when we can have sexual intercourse or any kind of sexual action, I guess, with um, someone when we're drunk or high or any number of things, right? Where we're just too, we, we aren't in in their right mind and not able to consent because silence is not consent. And if we're passed out, that's not, we cannot consent. We are not even conscious, Right. And so, in the same way we think about that. I mean, first of all, you said no and you pushed back. There's your answer, and you didn't ask for it. I'm so sorry. Such dirtbags. I want to punch that guy in the face and throw him off a moving train, um, and possibly get past this. Talk to someone. Reach out to a therapist if you haven't already. Getting support and having a safe space to to talk this through and to get support can be really, really healing. And also, the Hope for Recovery website has free groups and free trauma support. Um, and that could be really helpful as well. And I also know there's a lot for sexual assault victims, at least in the States, there's a lot of free, uh, online and in-person group support. I would really encourage you to get into that. Um, as you know, as soon as possible. And it sounds also going back to this person's question, they were saying like, it's not, it wasn't your first time having something like this happen. And again, First of all, I'm really proud of you for fighting back at all. It's very common that once we've been traumatized once, we can go into freeze so quickly because we don't maybe we fought back last time it didn't help us, right? Or we are we don't have much resilience, our window of tolerance right for something like this is very slim. And so as soon as we feel triggered in that, we like shut down, dissociate, right? Go into freeze. Um and so I'm really proud of you for fighting back as much as you did and I hope that guy again gets thrown off a train. Okay. Final comment on this question says, hi, I have a question and I hope it relates. Is being molested only once the same as sexual abuse? Yes, it doesn't have to happen multiple times. It can, and it usually does, but once is is all it takes. I was 12 and I went to a birthday pool party and the boyfriend of my friend's sister molested me in the pool. He lured me in the pool because he was going to teach me how to swim. He did this openly, even though people were around us attending the rest, attending to the rest of the children. Sadly, no one noticed. I was able to break loose by telling them that I have to go to the bathroom. And after that, I never let him be near me. It took me like six months to tell my mother because I was afraid she's going to get mad at me since I went to my friend's house after what happened to me. When I told her, she indeed got angry with me because I didn't tell her what happened sooner. Parents struggle to know how to respond and they're protective and they can get upset because they want to protect. At the moment, I felt bad that I didn't tell her and I remained quiet. I felt my silence got me in trouble. Unfortunately, when we parents don't know how to respond or react to this, they feel protective. They can be frustrated. They don't understand why you wouldn't tell them sooner. They want to do things to to fix what happened. Um, it's really hard. And I'm not saying that I'm not doing saying this to minimize your upset or pain in any way. But it can be very hard for parents to to know what to do and to even. Deal with this. It can be really hard for them to understand what happened, to uh, try to figure out how to approach, or if they approach the other parent, how what's the conversation? How do they protect their child? How come their child didn't tell them? There's just a lot swirling. It's really hard for parents, I think, sometimes to acknowledge that something bad happened and to deal with it in a in a therapeutic way. A lot of times they just don't know. So know that your mom wasn't mad at you. She just really wished you would have told her because she didn't want you hurt. And that was upsetting to her. And that's, it doesn't sound like your mom is like abusive. It, I think that was really what was going on. And I think that was just a knee jerk reaction, not a thoughtful response. It was just that protective mechanism where you're like, well, how come I didn't know about this? I want to do, I wish I could have done something more, blah, blah, blah. I don't want you going over there anymore. Right. Then the, the, the parental protections kind of fall in line. Um, But yes, once is enough to be sexually abused, sexually assaulted. You were a child, so it's abuse. Um, Yeah. I I, I don't think there are any other questions on that, but I hope that that at least validates what happened to you and helps you know that you were right for telling your mom. It's okay that it took you some time. It usually does. It's hard to talk about those things. And she's not really mad. She just wants to protect. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. Now this question says, Hey Katie, can you please explain when it's okay for therapists to break confidentiality regarding adult patients being a threat to themselves? Great question. I thought this only referred to active suicidal thoughts or plans. No, but my therapist told me last session, she might have to think about breaking confidentiality soon as I continue to deteriorate. Yeah. I asked what she meant. And she said, if my eating disorder behaviors do not subside or continue to worsen, or if my intrusive self-injury thoughts persist, I have self-harmed in the past, but stopped a long time ago. And currently I only have thoughts, not urges. So I don't think I'm going a risk um, to myself in this respect. I'm confused and unsure as to why she would break confidentiality over eating disorder behaviors. I looked at our agreement and Googled it. And it just says therapists can break confidentiality to, quote, protect a client, and others from serious harm. I'm in the UK, so I know that laws and rules might slightly be different than in the US, but surely she can't break confidentiality in these circumstances. I just don't think I'm sick enough for this to apply. I would love to know your thoughts on this and thank you for answering our questions every week. This podcast is always so helpful. I'm so glad. Now, this is a great question and I'll get into the comments, but I definitely know that somebody, somebody left comments on this. They're the same person with multiple, uh, multiple accounts wanting to get their point across and that is fine. So, I'm going to get through them all but know that if this is you, and you're the one that used all three of your accounts to leave similar type comments, you don't have to do that. You can leave them from the same account, or leave a longer comment. That's fine. Um, I'm gonna get through them. It's okay. It's okay to have different thoughts and to have concerns. Now, this person's question says essentially that their eating that their eating disorder is why their therapist might break confidentiality. Now, I don't love the way your therapist is going about this, and. I do always, as you guys know, have to throw out the caveat that it's a very, I don't want to call it a gray area because it's really not, but it's a—it's left to interpretation, meaning that every therapist has to assess when we've reached that risk where we have to break confidentiality to protect a patient from themselves or protect someone else from our patient, right? Now, when it comes to eating disorders, I've, knock on wood, not had to do this before, But it is something that my some other colleagues of mine have had to do. And the reason that she would break confidentiality for eating disorder behaviors is because an eating disorder is a harm to yourself. And I don't say this to scare anyone, but I have many patients who've had eating disorders for years and it deteriorates their heart muscle and they have fainting spells. They have arrhythmias. Um, I had a patient just pass out once. You can have, it's obviously there are physical Ramifications for this mental illness. And that's why it's the most deadly mental illness, is because, you know, not feeding our body or overfeeding it can lead to a lot of physical complications. And therefore, your therapist is worrying that if you're continuing to deteriorate, and not get better, that maybe they have to break confidentiality because you are a danger to yourself. It's just slow. It's not suicidal, but it's like, pa- I always, I've talked to many of my patients. Sometimes I think eating disorders are passively suicidal. Like, I'm not very happy with myself and kind of wish I wasn't here. So I'm just not going to feed myself, you know, so I slowly essentially am not here. I've had many patients who that's like the reason for their eating disorder, but everybody's different. Now, do I agree with what your therapist is doing? No. And here's why. I believe that they should look into getting you more intensive care. So maybe that means we go into an inpatient. Maybe that means we're hospitalized for a while, not 5150, but we need more care than just outpatient because we're not getting better. Now, if you guys don't know, I specialize in eating disorder work for years and years and years, and many of my patients would go through situations like this where they would just continue to deteriorate. And I would essentially give them a a therapeutic ultimatum, meaning I can't ethically see you anymore because you need a higher level of care. And if you will look into treatment centers with me, then I'll be here to transition you out in and back out of treatment. You can continue seeing me once, you know, once you've gone through treatment and I'll make sure to talk with your therapist while you're there. And, you know, we keep up with it, right? I do that for a lot of my patients so that we don't lose any time together. So I'm still up to date on what's going on. Um, But if you refuse, then I, I will be forced to put you into the hospital. Now I've never, had a patient not be open to going into treatment, at least day program or something like that, so that they can get more support. Hospitals are not therapeutic. And it's like a last, last, last resort in my mind, because I find them so traumatizing for many people. So that's usually how I go about it. Now, I have, like I said, my patients have been open to it, and we've talked about it. And I try to be very honest and open as we, even as I see them like having a tough time, like, hey, I noticed the urges are getting stronger, and your eating disorder, you seem to be losing weight. Your dietitian says you're struggling to keep up with things. You know, we might want to consider a day program. I talk about those things right away. Um, And so anyway, that those are my thoughts about that. Now, she can break confidentiality because you're a danger to yourself. I know it sucks and I'm sorry. I Again, I, I don't agree with this process, but because therapists and psychiatrists, all mental health care workers get to decide when they think it's reached that danger zone it's going to it's so up for interpretation. And a lot of therapists and other mental health care professionals worry about losing a patient, right? You let's say you fall down, you faint, and hit your head and it it kills you. That's terrifying and we can lose our license because we didn't do something sooner. And so there's this tricky part of being a therapist where I'm just not as risk adverse. Some of my older colleagues are very risk adverse and they will like 5150 quickly. <sighs> I don't know, maybe it's because of my training and like working inpatient. And because I work with eating disorders and self-injury, I have a higher risk tolerance when it comes to that. Um, And so far it hasn't screwed me over, but I'm just putting that out there. Now um, the comments from, I think there might have been two people, but I think it's mainly one person that asked a bunch of different or made a bunch of different comments. And they said, what if clients want to tell you everything?" Or want to say what they want to say, but they cannot because they're afraid that you're going to tell somebody if their issues are a gray area to talk about. Meaning, if the area was black and white, it'd be easy to tell or not. But if it's a gray area and it's affecting their mental health, then they want to tell you because it's badly affecting them mentally, but they're afraid of telling you. Um, it's a Russian roulette risk, too. How should they approach this without the fear of con- confidentiality be bro- being broken? Something that you can all ask your therapist is why would you ever break confidentiality? Now, in the states in California where I'm licensed, um, we have to offer you and not offer, we give them to you, our forms for our the practices in our office, informed consent about your consenting to working with me, and it goes through what your rights are and when I would break confidentiality and why. Now, it's very legal and the writing is not the best, and I'm sure almost every therapist has like the exact same one and it sucks. So don't, you could read it and you probably have that paperwork somewhere if you saved it, but it's also okay to ask your therapist, Hey, there's a lot I want to talk to you about, but I just, I don't really know the rules of when you could tell somebody I get, when I worked with uh, teenagers for a short period, I get asked that a lot. What are you going to tell my parents and why? And I'm very clear about it. And every therapist should easily be able to answer this for you. Now, if you think it's a gray area, you can do hypotheticals, Um, To find out, like, well, let's say, so I had a friend. You can even just say, so I had a friend that did blah 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 blah, and their therapist broke confidentiality. See, would you have done that in that situation? So you can ask directly, and then you get the answer, so that you know. Now, um, I know it kind of sucks that we have to. There are certain things that therapist is like mandated to report, but you can also understand the need for it, right? We have to protect other people. We have to protect you. We have a duty to protect, and that protection kind of sucks sometimes because it can be harmful in other ways, but our system's not perfect. It's just the best we've got so far. Now, another comment on this said, I struggle with this too. Like my therapist, this is the one I think is a little bit from someone different. My therapist told my dietitian things who told my doctor, and now they want me to go to the hospital. They're trying to let me decide myself and not force me, but I'm so angry because I'm. it's not like anything has really changed. So why was it okay for my therapist to stir up shit and get me in trouble? it takes years to trust these people and then they just throw it all away. I don't mean to laugh, it just was was funny to like you know, stir up shit. So, you've probably signed releases, which is why they can talk to each other. If you haven't signed releases for, a release of authorizations, what it's called, for them to talk to each other, then that is a break they breach confidentiality and that so sort of sucks. Um but unfortunately, when your treatment team works together, which is actually the goal, they can come to you know, your doctor might be seeing something that your therapist wasn't, or your therapist might be seeing something that your, you know, dietitian or doctor weren't, and they get together and they decide on next best steps for you. Now, the reason that your therapist, you know, quote unquote, stirred up shit to get you in trouble, wasn't really that they were doing that. It was because they're worried about your safety and they're worried about something. Now, I know it sucks because it can take us time to trust them and we can feel like it's all lost, but I really, really encourage you to, to, ask your therapist about this talk about it it's okay to express your discontent it's okay to be frustrated it's okay to let them know that you know you did this and it's really upsetting and, and fuck you kind of thing you can be mad it's okay and we want to understand why they did it also um and so ask them talk to them about it so that you can better understand it. and again i'm sorry that this happened in the way that it did but at least they're letting you kind of make a decision giving you options And it's okay to be angry. Sometimes my eating disorder patients in particular get angry. And I always think it's like eating disorder driven because your eating disorder is like, how dare you try to get rid of me? Fuck you. It rages. And so I always tell them, I'm like, I know you're mad, but I know it's your eating disorders that is mad and not really you. I'm doing this because I care. It doesn't make it easier. But all I can tell you is that they're doing it to try to give you the help that you need. And if you don't agree, talk to them about it. Explain why you don't agree and what symptoms you're seeing or not seeing. You know, it's really important that we at least let them know. Okay. Now another person says, what if you have patients who are depressed, but cannot tell you anything or refuse to tell you anything because you'd have to act like quote unquote mandated reporter on them. So then they won't tell you anything or refuse to tell you. So you have to stay stone cold, silent. They won't have any details and they have to censor therapy with you. Well, someone who's super depressed I don't. I guess my struggle with these comments from this person is that a lot of what you're mentioning it has no details. I don't understand. It's hard for me. If I'm, we're only mandated to report. You're a danger to self or others, or if there's any abuse going on, meaning uh, dependent adult abuse, elder abuse, or child abuse. Um, we don't report domestic violence unless there's children in the home, because then that's child abuse. And we're mandated through Tarasoff to warn a victim if you're going to like try to go kill somebody. So I really feel like the things that we're actually mandated to report, at least in the States and in California, are, are very limited. Now, yes, people can be broader with things, but not really. Confidentiality is something that's held by the patient. And it's taken very seriously, at least the way I was trained and the way that it's been talked about with me and the way I learned. So those are the only reasons that we'd have to report. So if you're super depressed, but you're also abusing a child, you probably, you know, they need to be reported because we need to protect that child. And if you're still being abused, you need to be protected. If you're a child, like, I guess I'm struggling to see how acting, you know, if you're super depressed I would there be nothing in there that I don't understand. Why I'd have to mandate report anything if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts? Like I said for to all of you, I have a very high level of tolerance for things like that, and I know that usually, you know, it's because we feel helpless and hopeless. And putting you in a hospital is only going to make it worse. I try to. There's also at least the way I was trained in California. Again, there are steps we have to go through before we can just 5150 you unless it's like a crisis. We're supposed to take actionable steps. Leading up to reporting at the least invasive as possible, meaning that if I think that you're suicidal, I'm going to either increase sessions if you can, if you can afford it and I have time, we're going to do that, or I'm going to do check ins, maybe twice a week, maybe every day, depending on what we need. Then I'm going to ask for your permission to maybe reach out to your roommate or whoever you live with, a spouse, to check on you if I don't hear back on our check ins. That would be the next layer. Um, we'll also do earlier on, I forgot, but like, I'll do safety plans and things like that. You guys know that. And I'll have you sign a little thing saying, I promise not to harm myself. I'll call Katie first kind of thing. Um, leading all the way up to me putting you in the hospital. And that's like down the line by like a long way. Okay. So it's, it's not what we, it's like the thing that we don't want to do, if that makes sense. And so I think that concern of people acting, you know, getting all mandated reporter on you, it's, Talk to your therapist and ask. Like I said, again, hypotheticals can help asking them, you know, what they would say or do or how they would do it. I think that's all helpful and that's something that you can ask them and it's better to know so that you don't just have to sit in silence. Otherwise, there's no point going to therapy if you're not going to share anything. Another comment said, Katie, I think you saying therapy is confidential is very misleading. See, I don't agree. Um, You always tell people to tell the therapist everything, but how can you tell them everything if there are limits to confidentiality? Again, the limits are very small danger to self for others and abuse. That's it. It says like, what if you had a teenage boy that was sexually abused and that's why he's being suicidal and he won't tell you. Um, I don't understand why he wouldn't tell the therapist about the sexual abuse. He wouldn't want it reported. He wouldn't want to, because again, the whole goal would be to protect that teenage boy, right? And to keep him safe. And I know it's complicated and I know I've heard from a lot of you, but then you don't want to get your parents in trouble. And sometimes we're in love with our abuser and things are complicated, but at the end of the day, I hope you can see it as our need to protect you and to keep you safe. Um, it says, and if a woman has an eating disorder because she sexually abuses kids and she won't tell you, but they end up telling you and then you go mandate a reporter on them and they end up killing themselves in your office. I feel like this is a scenario. I just, i first of all, killing themselves in your office. I can't even imagine that happening. Um, but if she sexually abuses kids, then she should be reported cause she shouldn't be able to continue doing that. And just so you know, also, um, there is mental health care, at least in California, in the States when you're in jail. And I think that woman who has an eating disorder cause she sexually abuses kids should be in jail and then she could maybe get support for eating disorder there as well. You know, um, I know that might sound harsh, but like if you're abusing children, I believe you should be behind bars or at least punched in the throat and spit on or thrown out on a moving train, right? That's not okay. There's a reason that we have to report harmful behavior. People who are harming children, man, there's a special place in hell for them. Okay. Um, says like, really, it questions, it really questions your place as a therapist or you in the world of therapy. If the therapy system in America is misleading, it makes this weird where you should tell them everything. But if you do, you get in big trouble. And you never talk about how to censor yourself in therapy in case you need mental help. Because the only thing that could potentially that I I would even feel partially comfortable saying to censor would be if, you, if you're having suicidal thoughts and you're worried they're going to put you in the hospital, but you know you're not going to act on them, then maybe don't tell them about those right away. That doesn't mean you can't talk about your depression or your struggles in life and the things that are affecting you. You can still tell a therapist everything. I know that there are limits to confidentiality, and it sounds like for this person who left a lot of these comments, maybe that's bitten you in the ass in the past, or you don't want to report your abuser. Or I'm not sure. Um, if you're over 18, you get to decide on whether or not you want to report it, anyways. If it's if you're not a child now, um, but if you're harming someone else, then you deserve to be in jail, or you deserve to at least you know, be removed from children. And if you don't agree with that, I guess I don't understand because if you're abusing kids, I can't have you around kids and I have to protect the children first or the the vulnerable people, right? The dependent adults, elderly and children. There's a reason those laws exist. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't deserve care, but I think that care should be done in a different way. And it, you can't be out in the world if you struggled with abusing children. You know, if it's an urge you have based on something that either happened to you or your own issues in general, we need to remove you from the general population because that's not safe for other people. And I know that's hard. That can be like a a big pill to swallow. But if you're a danger to other people, it's not safe to have you out around other people. And there, you know, yes, our legal system is flawed. And yes, I think the jailing system isn't the best, but there is mental health care there. Should it be improved? I would assume so, but I'm just there to tell you that you can still get help. But if you're a danger to someone else, that's why we're mandated reporters because we're protectors. And I, I'm i not going to apologize for it. So if that offends you or if that makes you upset, you have to understand, like if think put yourself in that child's position or that elder's position, we have to protect them. They have to be protected. They can't protect themselves. And if it's the suicidal stuff, like I said, you know, you can still tell them you're having a tough time. Ask them when they're going to report and how, ask to put together a safety plan. There are a lot of things that we can talk about in therapy and ways to get support if we're worried about that component of it. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, can therapists read minds? do, 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 do. <laughs> but for real though, my last session, I walked into the room before I even sat on the chair or said a word. My therapist said, your anxiety is way too high. Which she was right, of course. The last couple of months, my anxiety has been so high where I'm throwing up and having to increase medication. But still, it's even when I told her about being molested, she wasn't surprised. She said she figured it out within two sessions of seeing me. (laughs) Now, at the end of the day, I know logically you guys can't read minds, but my anxious voice is needing answers. Please and thank you. Have a wonderful day. This made me giggle because a lot of my patients have said this too. Like, how did you know? Um... First of all, we're very good at reading body language and reading people. That's why a lot of therapists, I was just on, um, Dr. J's podcast. I forget what it's called dropping in, I think. Um, but anyway, we were talking about how we're like sensitive people that mental health professionals tend to be kind of like a highly sensitive person because it behooves us in our work to be able to read people easily, right? Body language, little micro movements, um, just energy in a room, it's really helpful for us to be able to read that because then we're better able to help our patients, right? It kind of cuts through the bullshit a little bit and we can are able to like ask questions to get to things more quickly. And so we're better able to serve, right? Um, And man, body language tells us so much. And it was funny, the comments below this cracked me up because a lot of people are like, you know, COVID has kind of stripped her of her (laughs) superpowers of reading minds. And that's because there's so much that's missed. That's why I don't like online therapy in person is so much better because we miss so much of that because there's something about being in the room where you not only like, again, get that energy, but the body language, because if we're only seeing someone from like the chest up, it's just not the same. And so no, we can't read minds, but we're very, very good at reading body language and reading people. Not to mention the last component is we've had a lot of experience. And so a lot of times all, when I see a patient for the first couple of times, I'll have already drilled it down to maybe like, let's say three options of either diagnoses or traumas or something that I think has gone on in their life. And then I'm just going to ask questions to rule them out till I can come to, you know, an understanding about one, then I'll mention it to my patient, talk it through with them and see if they agree. And so, yeah, we we're pretty quick at kind of what we would call doing differential diagnosis, which is like, what's going on? We've got like our tree of symptoms and signs and things that we're looking out for. Um, Yeah. And the more we do it, I'd assume just, you know, the better we get. And yeah. So no, she can't read your mind, but yes, she can read body language and she's probably dealt with someone who's gone through something similar. And so she kind of saw all the signs in you as well. And that's why she was able to kind of not jump to conclusions, but like notice something so early on. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. And it says, hey, Katie, can you talk about the use of EMDR for anxiety disorders or other disorders other than PTSD? Of course. Now, EMDR is primarily used to process trauma. And the reason for that is that trauma can be hard to get into in a lot of other ways. And EMDR, essentially, if you don't know, it's it's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, where we try bilateral stimulation, meaning stimulating our body from left to right now this can be done through buzzers in our hands we can have uh, headphones on that make little bzz, bzz in each ear or pink like little tones in each ear left to right um we can tap we can have our therapist tap we can follow a finger or follow you know um like not a metronome but something like that right we can be following something left to right left to right and if you think of it it's almost like that rem sleep that we get where our eyes are like when we're sleeping, that helps us process our day and file it away. And EMDR is essentially giving your brain and your body another opportunity to do that while focusing on and walking through a traumatic situation. Now, that chance to process and calm our system down and have extra tools could be beneficial for a lot of things, right? If we have a an anxiety disorder and we get completely overwhelmed, then it can help to like process through. We all know also how anxiety likes to pull up like everything we've said every day or things we did in the past that were kind of embarrassing and like replay them. So doing that could maybe help us process through some of that. As we do exposure therapy, you can see it's like, I think of EMDR, it could be utilized as a way to just help us process through a difficult situation. doesn't have to be traumatizing, a difficult thing that happened. Um, or an overwhelming thing that happened and help us calm more quickly. And so I've even had patients in the past say when they get overwhelmed, they'll like cross their arms like this and do like the tapping. Um, And if you're just listening, I have my arms crossed like straight flat down and I'm tapping like on elbows, like hand to elbow almost. And no one would think that that was weird. People maybe think like, oh, they're a little nervous or something because they're tapping but or they're listening to music, you know, if you have earbuds in, but that's just a way that we can kind of soothe our system. And so I think that it could be beneficial in a lot of other ways, even though it's primarily been researched and talked about when it comes to trauma. But just like we know, a lot of treatments can help a lot of people. Now, another person had a comment that said, could it be useful for overcoming alcohol addiction as well? I think it could be a useful tool, but I have to push back a little bit into this because usually addiction comes out of some kind of trauma or extreme upset, even if we don't want to call it a trauma an extreme upset. And so I think if we focus on maybe the core reasons for our alcohol addiction, while we do the EMDR, that could be really healing. Um, Not to mention, again, calming our system down, having another resource so that we don't have to use alcohol or drugs to numb out. I think it could be extremely beneficial. And there was another, it says another comment, said just as an add-on, is it possible that EMDR can make your PTSD symptoms more intense before getting better? Yes, 100%. My therapist referred me out to some EMDR specialist, but I'm a bit reluctant to go as I'm worried about it getting worse. The It can get worse. So let me walk you through at least my understanding. For those of you know I do not specialize in EMDR. My good friend um, and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman does. We've done videos together about it where she's talked about the process and you can watch those. She does a much better job explaining it than I do. But for the sake of this podcast, I want you to know that EMDR starts off by building resources and having... Not only your resources, when we talk about like coping skills and things like that, ways to calm our system down, grounding techniques, those are all really helpful and beneficial because in order for EMDR to work, we cannot be dissociated, right? So there's that. But then there's also, I don't know if you remember, but when I did that EMDR session with Alex on my channel, which was wild for me, never done that before, she had me bring like a protector in and you have these people that you bring in to your situation or your scenario, to help you, and to it's essentially another type of resource, right? And so they do that early on before you go back into the trauma. And so hopefully, if your EMDR therapist is doing it properly and taking their time with you, it should not make your symptoms worse before they get better. But I don't want to downplay or minimize the fact that just digging into a trauma can cause us sometimes to to have more flashbacks and to feel it more often and to have more memories pop up hence the flashbacks and things like that or we can struggle to sleep. So that can happen frankly because we're like opening this this trauma box we've kept shut maybe for 10 20 years, we're finally getting into it and that can bring out a lot of different things. Now, it like I said hopefully you have enough resources that those like intensities that bump up in it are like manageable and don't feel so overwhelming but ask those questions when you meet with the EMDR specialist. ask them if you should expect for that and talk about, say, Hey, and I was listening to this podcast and they were talking about building up the resources and bringing in people like protectors and stuff to help, you know, help me work through this. Is that what you do too? You know, you can even say, I'm just worried about it getting worse before it gets better. Mention that because I could see it happening. Like I said, because going into trauma, you never know how we're going to feel, but if they're doing it properly, I feel like you should have all the tools to calm your system down as you go along. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to our final question. Question number eight. This says, Hey, Katie, I have a question about obsessive compulsive behaviors. I don't know if I actually have it. And I'm trying to decide what's going on in my head here. I feel as though things have to feel, have to go feel and be quote unquote, right. Or else I cannot feel calm. That sounds like OCD to me. I have a lot of anxiety and i use this sort of scale to calm myself for example if the house is clean then i can relax if things um if things are overwhelming but i can clean all day everyday cleaning trying to make things just feel quote unquote right i have a very rigid morning and night routine and if things are thrown off it throws off my mood for the next day or i can't focus until i figure out again how to make things feel right sometimes it helps for me to shower it almost acts as a reset for me is this ocd I have a therapist and she knows uh, this stuff. I just don't know if I'm wording it right. So because she's never brought up OCD. Interesting. Nor have I ever seen any videos that go beyond turning off and on the lights. Or oh my God, I'm such an OCD neat freak. I hate when people use that term. Um, so it's hard to understand or say what I'm going through. Any guidance would be amazing. Love you and your channel. Oh, I'm so glad. Okay, so this feeling right thing is definitely anxiety based. And here's here's why, okay. Um, people who skin pick or pick, uh, pull their hair. So trichotillomania or excoriation talk about this a lot, how the part of their face that they had to pick at, it just didn't feel right, right? There's just this little bump. I can feel it right. Or the hair as we're going through hair that this hair just, it just doesn't quite feel right. And they can't really explain what right is. You just know it. It's like an experience, right? Those are all anxiety based disorders, and that build. So here's how we know if it's OCD. And I, I think this is OCD. This is my problem with kind of the general knowledge of OCD is people always assume that OCD is super clean. And I know this person says they clean a lot, but a lot of my OCD patients were not clean at all. Always cleaning, washing their hands. um, And I think that's mainly what people talk about, like a neat freak, right? I'm super perfectionistic, makes me OCD. No, What OCD is, is that we obsess about something. Remember OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. Now let me explain. So I obsess about something. Now this isn't like, oh, I'm so obsessed with you. It's not that kind of obsession. What I'm talking about is what this person is saying, that if something isn't put away, it stresses her out. It's overwhelming. But she says, like, let me just read the sentence because this is exactly why it's OCD. For example, if the house is clean, then I can relax. Okay. So hers happens to be cleanliness focused, but not everybody's like that. If things are put away, then nothing bad can happen. So in OCD, we have an obsession. Hers obsession was like things being right and in their place and clean, organized probably too. We obsess about it. The compulsion is that if things aren't clean and aren't in in their place, then the compulsion is I have to clean and I have to put them in their place, right? That's the compulsion. I have to take this action to that, that pertains or connects this obsession, so that nothing bad will happen. Almost every OCD patient will tell you that because you'll say, "Well, what would happen if you don't check the stove seven times or you don't uh, flip the light switches twelve times or whatever? Something bad will happen." I don't know. It feels so overwhelming. Something bad's going to happen. So it's calming, and that's why we get caught in this cycle. We obsess, we do the thing, and we feel calmer, right? Obsess, we do the thing, we feel calmer, but the anxiety again starts to build and we have to keep doing the compulsion. Now, that's why I would say that this is OCD. Just that sentence alone, I was like, yes. Um, so I would mention it to your therapist. A lot of times therapists just don't say things out loud. I'm finding I, I, over the years, I've realized that I'm bizarre as a therapist and the fact that when I think I have a diagnosis, I talk about it with my patient. And I, I thought that was something everybody did because that's how I was trained, but turns out that's not the case. And so bring it up to your therapist. Um, Tell them that this is what you're going through. And I'm happy to, to do more about OCD um, and talk about it in other ways so that you know people don't feel like it's just clean freaks or turning off and on the lights that it like what it really is about. Um, but bring it up because I it's definitely OCD. And I'm not surprised you have a lot of anxiety. Cause like I said, OCD, even though technically it's not under the umbrella of anxiety disorders, under obsessive compulsive disorders, I want to say, or obsessive type, I forget. But in my mind, those are all anxiety-based because the anxiety builds until we do the compulsion and we relax, right? Nothing bad's going to happen. And so that cycle can be hard to get out of. And finding someone who really understands OCD can help you treat it is going to be life-changing because the truth about it, unfortunately, is we have to not do the compulsion. So my homework for you would be to like leave something out of place and see how long you can put it off doing the compulsion. Because even though we think, oh, something bad's going to happen. The anxiety is going to keep building. It builds and builds, and then it relieves itself without you having to do anything. And doing that slowly proves to your brain, you don't have to keep doing it. And that's how we really undo the OCD urge. So it's actually in the not doing it that we heal, whereas other things, it's not that way. But anyway, finding a therapist who can treat it would be wonderful. There was a comment on this and it says, as a follow-up kind of, what's the difference between OCD like this and perfectionism? I always thought I was just a perfectionist, but after seeing this, I could um, see how it's more OCD because I feel kind of distressed by it. Yes, there must be marked distress, obviously, like every diagnosis, it must impair our ability to function. And OCD, I think they say it must take over, take up over an hour of our time every day. And I could be off, but if my memory serves me, that's how long. Um, again, perfectionism, would be that like, when I do something, I want to do it fully, and I want it to be perfect, quote unquote, perfect, Um, even though nothing's ever perfect, but that's how we feel. But OCD is different, because again, we have that build up and that worry that something bad's going to happen. So if you have to have things, quote unquote, perfect, or something bad's going to happen, and you feel like a compulsion, I must do this in order to alleviate my anxiety about this, it's not so much perfectionistic as it is OCD. So that's how I would tease those out. And I hope that that helps. Um, now there's another comment that says, as an add-on, hopefully this is staying in the realm of this question, but you've talked about OCD in thought patterns. Yeah, pure O OCD. So is it OCD when I mentally need to plan out my day in my head, like out uh, playing out the schedule in every scenario of what may or may not happen? The thoughts will roll through my head all day, every day, and I can't shut it off. Mm, that sounds a little bit more... I don't know. I It sounds a little anxiety-based, at least. Um, the OCD part would be, do you have certain... Because pure OOCD is when we have actions that are thoughts that we have to do, like I have to think in a certain way. So for you, it might be, I have to plan out my day in my head and play out all the scenarios or something bad is going to happen. My anxiety continues to build and I'm just worried that something bad is going to happen. If that's that for you, if you're like, yes, then that is that is pure OOCD. Other, I mean, there's no a separate diagnosis it's just a way that we talk about it because most compulsions for people, you know, we see them, they're behavioral, but when it comes to pure O, it's just in our heads. And so people don't see it, we'd have to tell people what's going on and what the compulsion in our brain is. It'd be like, I think I've shared this in the past, how there's a period of time in my life when I don't even remember exactly the time frame, but I was really stressed out. I think it was when, um, when my parents and my brother were fighting because he was like older than me and like pushing boundaries, you know, as a teenager. And so they were arguing, and I don't like arguing. You guys know me. And so I started like having to spell all the words in my head before I could say them. And if I didn't, it gave me like a lot of anxiety. And I stopped myself from doing it, frankly, because it was like impeding my ability to live my life. Um, but that would be like a a pure O type OCD where it was all in my head. I had to do it internally. Um, and so just consider that for you. Um, does it give you a lot of anxiety if you aren't able to run through your schedule in every scenario? Um, or do you just feel this urge to do it and it's calming to do it? Like that might be more anxiety based, but again, you you kind of understand hopefully now the OCD cycle and you can see if that applies to you or not. Okay. That's it for this week. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you so much for listening. Please share this podcast. Please leave reviews and please leave your questions for next week. Again, I'm going to move them from 6am to around noon. Central Standard Time because now we're in Texas, you guys know. Um, I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Katie.